This is the sermon before the sermon. Um, that's a video. I want you to know we've talked about this at Connection and used some different words, but our church is wanting to communicate with you and let you know, huh, funny, no pun intended, that there is a focus to the life of faith, especially in particular our expression of faith as First Methodist. And so over the next few weeks, here and up the hill, we're going to talk about knowing God. We're going to talk about growing in God, and we're going to talk about showing God's love to the world. So know, show, and grow. Hey, they rhyme. <laughs> At Connection, we've been talking about it as formed, involved, and sent. Because Jim and I were on the same page with the Holy Spirit, but not on the same page with our language. Okay? So, but we're talking about the same thing. We're talking about knowing God and what it means to know God and is. Oh, it's, it should be on. Technical difficulties. But y'all can hear me. I got that theater voice. I got Lee's speaking roles in high school because it could be heard in the back of the room, not because I could act. <laughs> it was great. They, they, they put me on stage because they knew you could hear me is how that worked. But my mic working now? We good? Okay. Sorry about that. So we want to know God. That's the desire, that's the purpose of our life, and as Will just so eloquently described in the video, a life of worship is a life of knowing God. And so in the coming weeks, we will talk about that, but there you go. So everything that we do, hopefully, and some of these I admit, I confess or at, confess, I have to say this slower, some of these things I confess are aspirational goals, right? But when we talk about being formed, when we talk about being involved, when we talk about being sent, or in this case, no grow show, Right? We do those things through practices. Worship is a practice of knowing God. Prayer is a practice that helps us to know and to be formed by God. That's where I use the, pull the form thing. In fact, the spiritual life is a two-way street. We profess our faith in Christ and we seek to know God more through worship. And in return, actually usually sometimes before we even think about it, God forms us in our inner being. His presence indwells in our heart and helps us to know Him, right? So we'll stop there so you don't get two sermons this morning. But this is where we're going, all right? Involved and grow and show and scent are all kind of the same thing. Maybe I'll change the language to the rhyming stuff down here, but you get where I'm coming from, right? All right, so now having said all that, we're going to start a study of James. And yes, if you're part of the main part of the church, that is the Wednesday night Bible study. Work harder, not smarter. Smarter, not harder. I got that backwards. Um, I'm going to be preaching through the, gospel, through the book of James. And we are doing a Wednesday night Bible study on James after Wednesday night supper. If you want to join us for that, there's a free plug for Wednesday as well. But if you're missing Wednesdays, you're at least going to get a dose from me <laughs> on James, on the book of James. And I may not be able to preach through every single verse of James because we'd be here until August but I'm at least going to work through passages and hit highlights as we go and go through the entire book that way. Uh, we're going to be in the first 12 verses today, but just a little bit of back story to set this up. James is most likely, the writer of this book is most likely the half-brother of Jesus. Now, you know why I say half-brother, right? Because we believe that Jesus is the Son of God, <laughs> conceived, by, conceived in Mary, to be our representative, to die on the cross, to redeem us in our relationship with God. But Mary had other kids. So this James, we believe historically, is the James 
who would have been Jesus' brother. Can you imagine having Jesus as an older brother, by the way? I mean, if you're a younger sibling and you always get compared to the older brother, you got it easy by comparison. Why can't you be like Jesus? <laughs> can, you can you imagine that level of expectation? Mom, why can't you be like Jesus? Aren't we all supposed to be like Jesus? I mean, the kid could say it back to Mary. Aren't you supposed to be like Jesus? You know, like that's how that works. That's the goal of being a Christian. But we think he was the guy who grew up in the home with Jesus and ended up leading the church in Jerusalem. Now, when he was growing up with Jesus, he didn't necessarily believe Jesus was the Messiah. I mean, how do you believe the guy sleeping in the next room or in the same room with you is the Messiah? But when he became an adult, he did and was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, the original, original, original Christian church. James. And so he's writing this passage, this book, as we'll read in just a second, to the brothers and sisters in Christ in the diaspora. There's a fancy church word. In the dispersion. There's a couple of times in church history where all the followers of Jesus were scattered. One of them is 70 AD where Rome comes in and sacks Jerusalem, destroys the temple, which Jesus predicted would happen, by the way. And so if you're a Christian, and you get, you're like, you're out of here. Or Christians that just moved away during a season, they moved to Greece or somewhere. And so James is writing this letter to Christians that are scattered all over the Mediterranean world. And so it's a very pastoral letter. Let's read these first few verses, 12 verses or so. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you is lacking in wisdom, ask God, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to you. But ask in faith, never doubting, for the one who doubts is like a, wave, like, like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded and unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Let the believer who is lowly boast of being, in being raised up, and the rich in being brought low, because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field. For the sun rises with its scorching heat, and withers the field. Its flower fails, and its beauty perishes. It's the same for the ways of the rich. In the midst of a busy life, they will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Pastoral letter, right? In fact, James is known for, and we'll, we'll talk about this more in the coming weeks, show me your faith by what you do. Show me your faith by your works. In fact, some people even believe that he contradicts the Apostle Paul because Paul says in Ephesians, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by anything that you do. That's a sermon for another Sunday. But it really is a book of faith. In fact, he launches right in with faith, right? Except that first, second verse, it's worded different in different translations, but the phrase that catches my attention is this. Consider it pure joy when you face trials. Anybody happy to face trials and temptations? Anybody think, oh, gee, my life is hard right now. I'm so excited. 
I'm so full of joy. But he says, consider it pure joy when you face trials. <laughs> Thanks, James. That's fun. But you know what? That's a theme in Scripture. James is not the only one that came up with this. He's not the only one that's even said it. Romans chapter 5. So much for contradicting Paul, by the way. And not only that, but we also boast in our suffering. Knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit that has been given to us. Romans 5, 3 through 5. That sounds incredibly familiar, doesn't it? Almost similar wording to James. But he's not the only one. 1 Peter 1, 6 through 7. In this you rejoice, even if now for a little while you've had to suffer various trials, so that the genuineness of your faith being more precious than gold, that though perishable is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. So James, Peter, and Paul all basically say, there should be joy when you face trial and temptation. So James, didn't, James is not a rogue. He's not making this stuff up. He's the leader of the Jerusalem church. And then Peter and Paul come along and go, yep, James was right. They're all saying the same thing. They all have this opinion about what trials do. But I don't think what he's saying, because, you know, hey, go be a Christian. It's fun. You'll be joyful when you suffer. I mean, sign me up. Right, but I don't think that's what he's saying, because I don't think the I don't think he expects you to be filled with joy by the trial itself. Congratulations, Christian! You've got cancer. Be full of joy. I don't think that's what he means, because all three of them talk about something that comes from the trial. Right? Endurance, character, hope. Peter says, "Glory to God." One of my seminary professors said that when Christians get cancer, it's because God wants to see the world how the Christian responds to having cancer. Because if you have hope and you have joy and you have faith and you have endurance, you experience trials completely differently than everybody else who doesn't know Jesus. You're a different person. You ought to be a different person. But it's not the suffering that produces the joy. It's the fruit of the suffering that should give us reason for hope and joy. My wife and I were foster parents for a number of years of kids under two. For five years, we had 10-ish kids in our home, all under the age of two. I was a professional diaper changer. Get them potty trained, they go home, bring in the next one. Line them up, let's go. And there was plenty of times, you're talking about a six-month-old, hey, here's an eight-month-old, Good luck at midnight. They drop them off on your doorstep. Hey, I think we got a crib and I got to run to Walmart right now and get some diapers. Like, it was just crazy how that works. And like all parents, that means five years of 2 a.m. feedings and 4 a.m. feedings or waking up or crying or whatever goes with having an eight month old again and again and again. And there were moments, there were nights where it was me with a bottle, with an eight-month-old, going, gee, sleep would be nice at 3 a.m. And I remember thinking, there were moments where it's like, it actually is peaceful and joyous to just like hold them and feed them. Parents can relate. I get that. 
Didn't make the next day the most joyous thing ever, right? Sleep deprived for five years. But the fruit of being a foster parent to 10 kids. To see kids learn how to walk and talk and to be able to pour into their life for the season that we had them and to care for them. Yes, there was at least some suffering through sleep deprivation. Yes, there was all types of challenges with behavior and training and raising kids that have all kinds of emotional baggage because of their family life was not good. But we got to embody the gospel in the lives of those kids. And so, yes, we were suffering occasionally. There was one month, I think I've told you before, we had three under the age of two. And there was a, there's a picture, it's, on the, it's probably on Charlotte's Facebook somewhere, of me sitting on a couch holding one and feeding one, no, feeding one, and the other one asleep on my chest at the same time. That was in that month. I got like a two-year-old on my chest, an eight-month-old in a basket next to me, and the third one was in Charlotte, where Charlotte had the third one because we were at zone defense at that point. Like, for a month. It was crazy. And yes, it was suffering. But the fruit that came from that suffering was the reason for joy. And the being faithful in the midst of those trials and anguish that goes on in the midst of that is the reason for hope and the reason our faith endures. And that's what James is saying. He's not going, congratulations, you get to suffer. Because all of them say this. Paul, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God's love has been poured into our hearts. James says it this way. My brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of any kind, consider it nothing but joy. Consider it pure joy. Consider all of it joy because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And endurance will have its full, let, let endurance have its full effect so that you may be mature, complete, lacking in nothing. Now, Paul talks about endurance and character and hope. James talks about endurance and then he says, let it have its full effect. Let it bring everything to completion. James would have been a good Wesleyan. Because <laughs> we believe that God works us on to perfection, right? Paul produces endurance, character, and hope. For Peter, it purifies when Christ returns. And for James, it produces spiritual maturity. So that in verse 12, 11 or 12, he says, you will inherit the crown of life promised to you by God. Suffering has, church word again, an eschatological, I should know this because seminary, eschatological dimension to it. <laughs> Suffering has an impact on your eternal destination. It makes you a more mature follower of Jesus. Hardship, trials, temptation. When you're able to resist them, your faith is proven. And that's what James is saying. That when you struggle with trial or temptation and you resist it, it proves your commitment. And it deepens your commitment. It brings you on to maturity in faith. It makes you more and more like Jesus. That's what he's saying. But you have to have the patience to let it mature you. Because if you've ever been told, follow Jesus, all your troubles will go away. That's a false promise. 
Jesus will take care of everything. The difference is what it's like for us as we endure them. It's not a promise of absence. It's a promise of God who's with us in the midst of them. It's a promise of hope and endurance, improving our faith as we grow and mature. Peter talks about it like a refiner's fire. I think there's a praise song out there about that, right? In other words, that when you go through trial, it refines you, it removes the impurity and makes you more complete, a la James. It makes you more and more Christ-like when you endure hardship and trial. You see, we cannot control our circumstances. Try, certain things are going to... the try, If Being a Christian just meant all the all light, stop lights will be green. <laughs> Always, like, boop. Like, no resistance, no path, no struggle, no trial. The church would be swamped with people. Right? If becoming a Christian meant no traffic ever, no trials ever, no suffering ever, I would not have to advertise. We'd have people. Lots more people than we could fit in the building because that's the path to, like, no more trouble. We don't have that kind of control over our circumstances. You will face trouble and trial. It's just part of it. But James says, consider it pure joy. Consider implies that you could consider 2 a.m. feedings or health issues or financial struggle or exam week, <laughs> pure joy. That means it implies, the fact that you can consider it that implies that it's a state of mind. It's an awareness. It's an understanding that you are going through this, not because God's like, hey, let's see how he handles this one, but because when those things come along, you get to prove your faith by being faithful. Lacking in nothing. That's not an expression of material. It doesn't mean if you become a Christian, you'll have a million dollars. Any Christians? You know what I mean? Like, that's not what it means. It means that you will always be prepared to face trials. He says, when you let it make you complete, you will lack nothing. As you mature in the faith, as you become more Christ-like, when the next trial comes, you'll be more complete and completely prepared or more prepared each time. The harder it gets, the more prepared you are, I suppose. In fact, this idea of being complete has the same idea. It has a sacrificial bent to it. Think about this. Old Testament sacrifices, thank goodness we don't do those anymore. A goat right here, anybody, you know, that would be awkward. Old Testament sacrifices had to be completely without blemish. If you've ever read the Old Testament, they would say, bring this sheep and it can't have any spots, any defects, nothing. It had to be without blemish before it was sacrificed. That's why Jesus' sacrifice for us, it's a theological important understanding to understand he was without sin because for him to be our payment for sin, he had to be without sin himself or it doesn't work. That's a carryover from this Old Testament idea. Without blemish. From Romans 12, 1, a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. When you're being remade by Jesus, when you're being formed, when you're getting to know God, you know, back up, when that's happening inside of you and you're being moved on to completion in Christ, 
you are becoming at least spiritually without blemish before God. And hopefully an intent of your heart without blemish before God. And hopefully as you interact with other people, you are treating them the way Christ would have you treat them. And then Paul calls us in Romans 12 a holy and living sacrifice. We're supposed to live, be holy as I am holy is what Jesus called us to do. To be a living sacrifice acceptable to God. The only sacrifices that are acceptable are those without blemish. Do I mean you're going to be perfect as a Christian? Nope. If you think that's true, I think James, maybe Hebrews, one of them says, if you think you haven't sinned, you're fooling yourself. Nobody's perfect. But the question is, are we moving on and allowing God's work in us to make us more and more complete, proving our faith? You see, we're too quick in some cases. We want the trial to go away, or we want the sin to go away. We want, to be, we want God to do something for us right now when we face a trial or hardship. I wish this was over. I wish COVID was over now, right? We've all had that thought in the last two years. I guarantee you, 18 months and we want to escape the trial so hard, we will take the easy escape route. I'm lonely. I'm not going to allow that to work out in my heart. I'm going to take the escape route and compromise who I am just to have somebody. I'm broke. I'm going to steal. Why not? In other words, we, when we face a hardship, we have an option to be faithful to the life we've called ourselves, been called to, or to take the counterfeit that feels like a solution to the trial, or feels good because it's, a, it's tempting. Oreos and milk is one of my life temptations. If I live off them, you will know it <laughs> by the size of my waist. The easy route, give me half a bag, let's roll, because it feels good, tastes good. Are there consequences? Oh, yeah. <laughs> there used to not be. In college, no problem. Now, when we face a trial or a temptation, what do we want to do? We want to give in. We want to escape. We want to take the easy way out. And what we end up taking is a counterfeit, thinking it'll give us joy and peace. It gives us even more trial and hardship. But when James says, let the, temp the trials work you to completion, he's saying you have to be patient. The day you become a Christian, it's not like, now I'm perfect. This God is at work in your heart day in, day out, thought by thought, minute by minute, moment by moment, hour by hour to become more and more like Jesus. It's not instant bake. <laughs> no microwave Christians. You can't speed it up. That's God sitting around going, let's see what they do. That's next week. We'll talk about that later. That's not true. But then verse 5 through 8, what does he say? If any of you is lacking wisdom, ask God, who gives all generously and ungrudgingly, and it'll be given to you, but ask in faith, never doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave on the sea, driven, tossed by the wind. For the doubter, being double-minded, unstable in every way, must not expect to receive anything from God. Ooh, that's kind of harsh, James. So does that mean that if you ever doubt God, you're not going to receive anything? No. 
Ever doubted God? Ever wondered if God's going to come through? Ever wonder if God's real? Is that what he's talking about? No. Doubt in the biblical context, doubt in James's context, has to do with resolve or commitment. Am I, are you in or are you out? That doesn't mean that sometimes circumstances don't make you go, God, can you fix this? Like, what are you doing? Where you been? There's whole books of Psalms where David goes, will you not take care of my enemies now? That's part of the faith walk. To expect God to do and to act and to work in our life, but we don't get to set the timetable. Hey, I'd like to be a mature Christian tomorrow. Thank you, Jesus. You know, we don't get to do that. God has his own plan, his own timing, that own thing. But he makes us a promise in James that when you face trial or temptation, which is the context of this wisdom passage, wisdom in the Bible sense is the ability to discern or to judge what God's will is. So when he says, if you are confused or you don't understand or don't know what to do in a difficult set of circumstances, ask God for wisdom. Duh. Duh. <laughs> What's he saying? He's not asking God for more knowledge. He's asking for you. He's saying, ask God how to handle the circumstances. How to live in a way that matches your commitment and your faith. Because if you doubt, and by doubt he means, I'm going to take a different route. I don't trust God. That's what he's saying. If you just got to decide, you know what? This whole Jesus thing, following Jesus thing, it's just not working for me. I'm choosing a different route. That's what they mean by doubt. It's not, I wonder if God's real or I wonder if God's faithful. It's like, I, I am choosing a different path. I don't think it's going to work. They're not grounded in anything. They become a wave tossed about because they're not committed. And don't expect God to do anything for you if you choose a different path. That's what he's saying. But he says, if you ask God for wisdom... He freely and generously gives it. Of course he does. If you're asking God, what should I do in these circumstances? Don't you think God's going to go, here's what you should do. God's not going to be like, I don't know, you figure it out. <laughs> of course he freely and generously gives wisdom. If wisdom by definition is live according to the way I want you to live, don't you think God's going to go, here's how you live? It's called 66 books of it. He freely and generously gives it. His Holy Spirit is happy to give you the wisdom if you ask for it. That's what verse 5 is saying. I'm not going to go, God's not going to go, hey, here's a trial, figure it out. <laughs> here's a temptation, good luck with that. If you find yourself in a set of circumstances that are overwhelming, James says, ask God for the wisdom to go through it. And who the God who freely and generously gives it will give it to you. If we have a faith commitment to God, then we will ask Him for wisdom. We will endure trials because that proves our faith. And when we are in the midst of those trials, we'll ask Him the way through. This book's about faith more than you realize. Faith to trust God in the first place and to prove it by the way we commit. And then faith to ask God when life is tough. Because that's what you're doing, right? As soon as I say to God, hey, I, I really don't know what to do in this set of circumstances. Could you give me some wisdom? Where's my trust? 
It's not in myself anymore. The very prayer itself is placing my trust in God to provide the wisdom instead of me. You're a perfectly, you're the perfect, you're the product of every decision you've ever made right now. You get what I'm saying? You're the sum of your major choice. You're the sum of your career path. You're the sum of your relationships. Every choice you've ever made has brought you to right where you are today, period. How's that working out for you, Dr. Phil says? Right? When we're trying to do that ourselves, it's not necessarily wise. We're in charge. We're placing our faith in our own confidence. We're placing our faith in our own abilities. We're placing our faith in our own talents. We're placing our faith in our own wisdom. And James says, when you face trials or temptations, ask God for wisdom. He will gladly give it to you. And by asking, we're saying, look at this mess I made. Will you please help me clean it up? By default, we're trusting that he's going to give us the answer we're looking for. By default. By asking. And James goes, he wants to. He wants to. Verse 9 through 12. Let the believer who is lowly boast in being raised up and the rich in being brought low because the rich will disappear like a flower in the field for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers, its field, withers the field. Its flower fails, its beauty perishes. It is the same way with the rich in the midst of a busy life. They will wither away. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Okay. By the way, you're rich. Got two TVs, got a car, got a big house, small dorm, <laughs> I don't know. You're rich. If you live in the United States, you're in the top 5% in the world anyway. Seriously. And then James goes, mm, good luck, rich. Those who have been brought low will be raised up. The rich will fade. What's he talking about? Is it a sin to be rich? Is that what he means? No, of course not. People who are facing trials, people who are facing two tempta temptations, people who are facing struggles are by definition low, right? They'll be raised up. The rich will fade. What is he talking about? Those who trust in wealth and possessions and the things of this life, it won't work. It's everything I was just saying about our own ability, our own career, our own mind, our own powers, our own talents are going to fail us. One of the plays I was in in high school where you could hear me in the back of the room was, you can't take it with you. That's what it was called. Actually, it's a musical. You can't take it with you. What's the whole point of a musical called, you can't take it with you? Your bank account isn't going with you to eternity. <laughs> Your career choice ain't going to be in heaven. Well, unless heaven has something to do with what you do in heaven. I don't know. But you can't take it with you. This stuff is going to fade. You're Athletes, your athletic ability is going to fade. If your hope is in your 40-yard dash speed, good luck with that at 40. Unless you're Tom Brady. 
Like, good luck with that. It's going to fade eventually. Time is going to catch up with you. Your abilities aren't going anywhere. They're going to shrink and wither. They're not what gets you the crown of life. And those who sacrifice and endure and face trials and persevere and rely on God's wisdom will be raised up. Remember, I told you, suffering has an eschatological meaning. What does that mean? Eschatological is like end time stuff. Next phase stuff. So somebody asks you your eschatology, they're asking you if you believe in the rapture and stuff, like end time studies. You know, everybody wants to study Revelations, yes? I always go, hey, what, what should we study for Bible study? Revelations. Okay. <laughs> the one book I'm like, oh, works. God, great eschatological truth here. Love wins, God wins. Next. How it plays out, I don't know. But I am confident of this. God wins. And so James just says, hey, those who rely on God, though low, will be raised. Those who trust in wealth, it's going to fade on them. It won't last. That's what he means. And then verse 12, I told you that James was probably Jesus' half-brother, right? Verse 12 Sounds a whole lot like a beatitude from Matthew 5. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. Consider it pure joy when you face suffering, because those who face suffering will be blessed. Verse 1, verse 12. Those who persevere, those who endure, those who place their hope in Christ will receive the crown of life promised to them by God. It's a beatitude. Blessed are those who endure, for they will receive, they will inherit the crown of life. Our faith and our hope is in God. Because you see, when I said, well, James, the context with James and money, Jewish people in that day believed that if you were rich, you were in God's favor. If you were poor, you had done something wrong. That's the other thing behind this last verses 9 through 11. That's why when Jesus says it's harder for a rich person to go through the eye of the a camel to go through the eye of the needle than a rich person to get into heaven, and the apostles all go, Well, if the rich aren't going to be saved because they're rich, who gets saved? Their mentality was that if you were Bill Gates, God must love you. If not, you must be off the reservation somewhere. And James flips it and says, those of you who are brought low, those of you who are facing hardship, those will be the ones who inherit the crown of life. Let's pray. Gracious God, wonderful counselor, mighty Lord, everlasting Father, our faith is in you. Our faith is proven in our commitment. Our faith is in the fact that we trust you with all wisdom and with all hope and with all joy, even when we face trials and temptations. Because we know that in the midst of those hardships, you are there. You are faithful to keep our promises. You are the one who endures this with us. That is the gospel. That is the best possible truth. That you are always with us. In your precious son's name.
Amen.